Welcome to Junior to Senior, the podcast for ambitious devs who want to take their career to the next level. I'm your host, David Gutman. Today, I'm joined by Sam Sweeney. Sam, welcome to the show. Hi, David. Thanks so much. So, yeah, of course. So for people who are meeting you for the first time, want to share a little bit about what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I am currently uh, the founder um, of a startup called Trivi, which is an online trivia company for team building. I'm the kind of founder, uh, software engineer of Trivi, the, uh, currently the uh, sole employee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wearing a lot of hats. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. So how did you how did you get into that? Yeah, so I guess the story with Privy kind of starts um, with my last job when I was a software engineer at Google um, in the office in Venice Beach. So I had started working at Google in, I guess, September of 2017 and worked there for um, about three and a half years. And then COVID hit last year and I started working from home in Santa Monica. Um, and I think I had a like, pretty similar experience to a lot of people where work just became a lot less fun. You know, a lot of what makes work exciting is the people that you're around, the conversations you have at lunch, kind of just the atmosphere at the office. And Google, they kind of tried to fill in kind of the kind of missing stuff there, a lot of like online events. And so I got to see a lot of the kind of um, team building activities that kind of spun up during COVID. And some, you know, I I think a lot of them are, are pretty fun, but I also thought that there was definitely room for improvement in the products. A lot of it was kind of, um, typical event companies that kind of woke up and everyone was working from home and kind of scrambled to, you know, add Zoom, add Slack, add Discord, something like that um, to their existing product. So mm-hmm. I had kind of long thought about starting my own company um, and kind of I decided that I wanted to kind of take the jump. And so I left Google in January to start working on Trivi um, and have been doing it since then. Awesome. Did you... So I know you uh, once upon a time you did a boot camp. Did you always know yeah. that that you were ultimately going to go to entrepreneurship, or at the time were you thinking that it would be really good to go to a company like Google? Like what what did you can you remember what you thought your trajectory was going to be once upon a time? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I kind of always had it in the back of my head um, that I wanted to start a company. Um, that being said. I was never of the opinion that like it was the end all be all, you know, like I think the advice that people give of, you know, starting a company is really hard. You're probably going to fail. (laughs) Um, You know, the odds of, you know, being like a Uber like success or, you know, this big, massive success is is very low. Right. So you should only really do it if you a feel like you're Mm -hmm. going to enjoy it and b kind of have strong conviction around your idea. And so kind of the way I approached it was, and one of the reasons why I kind of went to a programming boot camp was because for a technical, I did not want to start a technical uh, kind of oriented company without having a technical background. And I kind of throughout my, I guess, you know, the main motivating principle throughout my career has been one of kind of increasing optionality of, you know, adding skills and uh, experiences that kind of broaden the possibility of what I'll be able to do in the future. And that's kind of how I saw, you know, going to a boot camp and working at different companies and, you know, working at a place like Google that really kind of educates you about certain technical things and practices is that, you know, if you go work at a place like Google, um, I think if you're, if you're thoughtful about what you do and the way you approach your work, you have, you know, the ability to be successful at a large company, but then you can also take a step back and say, all right, you know, how can I use these skills if I, and apply them to a different area, like, you know, starting my own company? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I really like that. I mean, can you give any examples of of how or like what you've learned from Google that that are that's useful to you and in, in your own company now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would say like uh, that's a really good question. I think that not just Google, but you know, so I've worked for for three tech companies. Um, I worked uh, prior to working at Google, I worked at Uber in the Bay Area, and then prior to that, my my first job out of um, the boot camp was at a a startup called Wealthfront that is uh, an online financial advisor. And I would say the less, the most important lessons I've learned, one is kind of, a, and this is, I think, primarily from uh, Wealthfront and then also some people that I worked with at Google um, about being pragmatic in your the choices of, of technology that you use to kind of solve your problem. You know, I think there is uh, a trend oftentimes of, you know, chasing new, exciting technologies, which which is good because, I, you know, which isn't to knock that because it's good to be excited about the things you work on. And if, you know, you get excited <laughs> about new technologies, like that's great. That being said, um, I think one lesson I've taken away is, you know, there's actually a talk online. I think, I believe it was from an engineer from Etsy called like Choose Boring Technologies. <laughs> and I, I, I really, yeah, definitely. you know, subscribe to that philosophy. Um, and, you know, in the work that I've been doing at Trivi, um, I've, I've tried to follow that. And then I would also say like one kind of high level takeaway from my experiences has been, and I think this is something that, you know, it's, it's really important to do as a software engineer is to always be thinking of like, what is the kind of business product purpose of the, te- the technology that you're working on mm-hmm. and try to avoid getting too kind of swept away in the, in the tech side of things. And so, you know, with, you know, building this product at Trivi, that's something I, I try to kind of keep in mind for all the features that I build and the way that I'm approaching the product and uh, the business. Yeah, I like that a lot. I, I mean, I even um, referenced the use boring technology uh, talk a bunch. I, I gave a talk recently, recently ish at JSLA uh, called "How to Get a Better Job Without Learning a New Framework," and I I completely agree with that. And actually, recently you gave a a talk at JSLA where I think your your choice of technology was was pretty pretty central to the theme. So it sounds like you've you've kind of seen the opposite too. Um, you've seen engineers maybe go a little overboard with uh, newer and untrusted technology what what kinds of problems have you seen when when that happens yeah I think um, I would say part of it is it, it really depends on the context I would say in an organization especially junior engineers and this is something that I didn't understand at the start of my career either was that getting buy-in from other people in your organization around technologies is very important. Mm. And, you know, this is high level. I think one thing that is really kind of misunderstood about software engineering is that, you know, it's primarily, I think, a social endeavor. You know, that's kind of the most important part of the work is not you sitting, the, the, the kind of meat of it is not you sitting by yourself at your laptop, writing up, you know, a new React component. It's, you know, the putting out the PR and having one of your coworkers look it over and, you know, writing the design document for a new microservice that you're planning on building and um, trying to get buy-in from other people on your team. And so I think that, you know, people, it's it's important to kind of have that uh, kind of empathy for other people on your team and to view things through everyone's perspective, not just your own, when you choose new technologies. 
and maybe you feel confident uh, in your ability to learn and build something with this new technology, but it doesn't really matter if the rest of your team doesn't feel the same way. Yeah, uh, I can totally, I can totally see that. I mean, it's it's so easy, you know. I I, I can remember it being so easy as a junior developer to fall in love with a new technology and just think about all the different ways it was going to just solve every problem and then wanting to introduce it into the company and like you know like okay we got a new project let's just like use this new language or something like that but you know the way that i see that now um as a as a manager and somebody who runs engineering organizations is i can't really trust that engineer to stay around forever and beyond that that engineer is not the only person who's going to be uh touching that code or like building off of it and so whatever new language that is like i have to be convinced other people are going to see the same value uh and that they're going to be excited and technically capable of using it well and these just aren't really things that that i think people always consider and like you say the the best way to to handle that is to to get buy in you know it's not it's a it's a dialogue with other people and you can you know just by having those conversations and and like you say the, the communication you can quickly figure out if other people think it's a good idea or or not absolutely yeah so um Okay, so let's 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 go back. So let's go back to to uh, Wealthfront. So you had just finished up the boot camp. What was surprising to you um, when you got there? Yeah, I mean, I remember the experience pretty well, even though this was in uh, 2014. Where so I did the, um, a boot camp called App Academy. Uh, they have an office in uh, San Francisco and also in New York City, um, and I had actually attended the New York City office. And I moved to San Francisco to find a job and, you know, started applying for jobs and got pretty fortunate to find Wealthfront pretty early in my job hunt. And I think by the time I started at Wealthfront, I, it had been maybe two months since I had finished the boot camp. And I remember like very clearly like going into the office of Wealthfront in Palo Alto on my first day and just my mind being entirely blank that, <laughs> you know, you attend the boot camp for three months. You kind of cram all this knowledge into your head. Um, I was actually starting at kind of a blank slate. I didn't didn't have any software engineering um, kind of background prior to attending App Academy, hmm. and it's kind of like cramming for a final, you yeah. know, in in college where you try to kind of shovel this information in your head, and then when it's over and you walk out of the exam room and it's all gone. And that's kind of what it was like with Wealthfront. That sounds um, a little scary. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, I think I got I got very fortunate in that, you know, Wealthfront was a, a really incredible first job for me to have mm -hmm. as a software engineer. And they were, you know, and this is kind of something I tell, um, you know, when I talk to people now that are graduating from boot camps, is that to the extent that you can, uh, it's really important to try to find a, a company that understands what it's like to get a new graduate from a boot camp and to understand that background. Um, and Wolfram was had had a, you know positive experiences um, with a couple of boot camp graduates, which is why they were kind of willing to take a chance on on me, where you know I again I, I had very little experience. It's because they kind of understood the background, 
uh, they understood the background and kind of how to um, to develop me as a software engineer. And so, have you heard of company like things going not so well at companies who don't don't understand what that background is like? Um, I haven't heard kind of firsthand stories, but I you definitely hear about companies that are not willing to consider bootcamp graduates. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of that is usually one of two things. One is that they they hired someone from a bootcamp, and it for some reason didn't go very well, or they're more used to hiring you know, for, for their junior role, someone uh, fresh out of a, C, a kind of a four-year CS program. And so they expect you to have that background and not necessarily the background that you would have out of a boot. Got it. Maybe more theoretical and less like hands-on yeah. practical or something like that. Absolutely. Yes. Got it. Um, and, you know, I would say the most important thing I learned at Wealthfront was a real emphasis on testing, mm-hmm. um, which is something, especially from a bootcamp graduate, that um, that background you you typically don't really you don't really understand it very much, um, mm-hmm. just because you're you know three months is a very short period of time, and you're kind of sprinting to learn you know HTML, JavaScript, React, Express, SQL, this kind of hodgepodge <laughs> of technologies, right? Yeah, it sounds kind right. of crazy when you when you just say it like three months for this, and you're like. I remember during App Academy, we had like the week on SQL, you know, we had the like the two mm-hmm. weeks on Ruby and it's, it's, you're really sprinting through this yeah. stuff. And so the idea that you would stop and, you know, write tests to give you confidence in your code is, is kind of a crazy concept. And mm-hmm. at, at Wealthfront, that was the, the CTO, who I, I believe is now the, at the time he was a CTO and I believe he's now the, the president of Wealthfront, really did a good job of setting the culture at the top of not taking up purely dogmatic approach to testing, not to say like every, you know, the 100% coverage, but more, you know, testing is a tool that we use to get confidence that our code does what it's meant to do. Wolfram did have a, at the time, I think it's been relaxed, but at the time they had a no comments policy in the code, which, you know, since working at Google, I, 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 I understand where it comes from, but I think having saying no comments ever is bad. But it was kind of of the again from a cultural perspective, you know, tests um, should document your code. Yeah. And you know, again, approaching your the code that you write with the idea of how will someone else view this? How will someone else understand this in two years when mm-hmm. I'm working somewhere else um, or I'm working on something else? Yeah, the comments yeah. ones uh, funny because I'm I'm also very very down on comments. I feel like they're too easy to use as a as a crutch. Um, and I prefer, I prefer that, that effort and communication to be put elsewhere. Like you say, sometimes in tests and sometimes in just being more explicit and legible when you write code. So that's, that's interesting to hear that that was a, that was a, that was a rule. Yeah. So what, um, what was, what was it like interviewing, um, and, and trying to find, uh, a job out of a boot camp? What do you think worked particularly well for you? Um, that's a good question. It's, it's funny because the, I think it's both a, a, a positive thing and a negative thing about tech in that in general, the interviewing process is very different from other skills that are necessary for the job. And so I think that's true. If you've been working at the same job for five years and you want to find a new job, you kind of re- need to um, learn that skill set kind of all over again, usually or at least brush up that skill set. And it was the same coming out of a bootcamp where they had not really emphasized the types of questions that you would get in a typical software interview. 
And so for me, and you know, App Academy's advice at the time was to do lots of lots of lots and lots of, of uh, applications and try to do lots of interviews. The idea being it's a skill, the best way that you can practice for an interview is to do more interviews and expect the first 10, 20, or five, you know, some number to go very poorly. Yeah. And eventually you kind of build up that, uh, that skill set. And do you and agree so, with that? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, for, for my experience, I, I didn't do very well at first. And then I gradually got the hang of it. Gotcha. And I think there's also just an element of luck in the process, mm-hmm. um, yeah. as is true of, you know, lots of life of finding a company that asks you a question that you happen uh, to be ready for and, and kind of clicking. And the way that you do that is, I think, the, the way that you, that you get lucky is by just applying to lots of places and uh, hoping that, that it happens. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And how different was it uh, when you, you know, by the time that you were interviewing at, at Uber, like what was what was that like? Yeah, it was totally different. I think that the way that I, you know the way I think about it is, uh, and, and and I think what people generally understand, and and I think it's true, is that the first job is the hardest to get. Mm-hmm. The most important thing is to get your foot in the door, mm-hmm. and once you have that one you know line of experience on your resume saying I worked as a software engineer at X Y Z company, it's the follow up process is much 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 easier. That being said, for the follow-up process, I think what that gets you is that will get you in the door. That'll get you typically um, at least a phone screen at you know fifty percent, twenty, you know some some high percentage of places that you apply to. Um, and so, in terms of the places that I so I worked at Wealthfront for somewhere between a year and a half to two years, and I wanted to kind of expand my skill set. And so I started to look around at companies where I thought. I would expand my skill set and you know be exposed to new technologies and new ways of thinking. And Uber was uh, very attractive to me, partially, I would say primarily because of the scale. You know, Wealthfront is it's an awesome product. Uh, i'm I'm really passionate about their mission. But from a technical perspective, it's not really the same as something like Uber where you know they're running. I think when I was at, you know, Wealthfront, I worked a lot on the uh, web app. Um, and it's, you know, just the fact that making a web app and, and, and building a web app for, you know, X tens of thousands of users is very different from building a taxi cab application that's running on people's phones across the world. Um, and I remember that when I, I think in terms of the actual interview itself, it wasn't, I think the thing that you start to encounter as you become a little more senior um, you still have the kind of coding slash algorithm questions, but then you, you might have a kind of systems question. And I think at Uber, they asked me, if, 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 I, if I remember correctly, they asked me to um, kind of sketch out the architecture of, uh, uh, of Instagram, which I think is kind of a common uh, systems question. You know, what would you build or kind of what's the way that you would build XYZ app, you know, WhatsApp or Instagram or Twitter um, to kind of see if someone's capable of thinking in kind of those those higher level kind of ways. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Was there anything so so you were really interested in the scale? So what did you what did you learn about that once you were you were working there? How did that change things? Yeah, I mean, uh, it was um, I guess, you know, one, one story that I tell about my time at Uber is I had been there for just a couple of months. 
and I was working on this feature to, I think someone had through, through Uber's bug bounty program had pointed out that uh, when a driver receives a ride offer, they were able to see the user's phone number prior to accepting, which was considered you know, leakage of, of uh, data. And so what I was trying to do was I was trying to mask this phone number prior to accepting. And I had coded up my change. I had, I had it submitted. I had it behind a flag. And um, I had even put in um, some monitoring to see the number of ride offers that actually had the phone number versus didn't have the phone number. And I think it was around 8 p.m. on a Thursday night, I was in the office and I was ready to flip my feature flag um, and make this change. And what I expected, I, I had, you know, I had made this great little dashboard um, where I had one graph showing the number of ride offers that had this phone number and, you know, uh, a different graph that had the number of ride offers that didn't have the phone number. And I expected the kind of charts to switch. At first, there were zero that didn't have the phone number. Uh, and there were a ton, there were, you know, 10,000 per second, or I'm not sure that the scale of Uber at the time that it did have it. And so I flipped my switch through, I think, I believe it was called Flipper, just their, their feature flag framework at, at Uber. And uh, instead of seeing these two lines cross, they just both, they just crashed. They went to zero. Oh. And my first thought was, wow, like the monitoring is broken. Yeah. So there is, you know, this is just my luck. Just as I'm trying to roll out this feature, the monitoring is broken. And so I sat there scratching my head for a couple minutes. And finally, I just thought, you know, oh, I'll try this tomorrow. It's too late. I'm going to go home. And so I turned, I turned off my feature flag and went home. And I found out that the next day that I, I had actually broken all of Uber. I had made a mistake that um, broke the schema validation, which caused a 500 errors. And I broke wow. Uber globally for about 10 minutes. Um, wow. And this normally would have been caught, but you know, Uber was still kind of a mess back then. And so mm -hmm. the um, automated framework that was meant to detect these types of errors was actually broken at the time that I did this. So no one, uh, people didn't necessarily notice at the time either. That's wild. So what, yeah. yeah I'm, okay, so I'm so curious, like what happened next? Like, yeah. yeah. So it, it was um, I in Uber's there was a chat room for kind of all engineers, um, and someone was asking. Oh, they were trying to figure out. They they saw the next day that oh there was this ten minute blip in the metrics, and they were trying to troubleshoot what went wrong. And you know, at an organization the scale of Uber, it, it can be kind of tough, especially you know back then they had really been leaning into this microservices architecture mm -hmm. and there are pros and cons, but one of the cons is it's really hard. You know, people are deploying their things all, all the time, all the time. There are, you know, local ops people across, across the globe that are flipping flags and changing features. And it's kind of hard to root cause things. And yeah. I was watching this mm -hmm. conversation. I saw someone saying, Oh, there was this thing, there's this outage last night that lasted for 10 minutes. And I had the sinking feeling in my stomach and I thought, Oh no, and I looked and it lined up perfectly. And so I thought, well, I have to say something. And so yeah, I, I was like, that's a that's a very like icy, icy feeling. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It, I was I felt really bad, you know, because mm -hmm. um, not only had I, you know, broken this thing, but it's, you know, U Uber, this is a thing that that's used by people across. The, you know, this is something that's a technology that people use for their livelihoods. Yeah. 
Um, and it's 10 minutes, but you don't want to, you know, take that away from people. Yeah, sure. I mean, and but at so, that scale, that's that that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I spoke up and then I ended up having to write a postmortem where I, I mm -hmm. said, you know, this is what went wrong. Um, and they made a number of changes coming out of kind of based on this postmortem. Um, mm -hmm. One of them was to, and this is, I think, something that as large organizations scale, they, they kind of learn pretty, ho hopefully pretty quickly that you shouldn't have a feature flag. I, I had turned on the feature flag globally, which now I, now I understand uh, is a really bad idea. Yeah. At, at Google, I don't think that's even really possible. They really tried to, you know, you try to, if you have a large product that's used by lots of people, you roll out your change slowly, 1%, 5%, <laughs> Etc. Yeah, I didn't want to interrupt your story, but that was something that that jumped out at me is uh, the oh, idea absolutely. that like it was just a a binary flag, and that was sort of like the first time. But um, yeah, absolutely, totally yeah. understandable. And yep, you'd want to yeah address that. Yes. So I think it was partially if you know my feeling, mm -hmm. but it was also you know I had been an engineer for maybe two years, and I, at the time I d I just didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. you know? Well, I mean, I, I um, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was the type of thing that other people, I'm sure, did that as well. It wasn't wasn't like sure. emblazoned above all the the doorways uh, that you shouldn't do that, right? Like, right, right, <laughs> and and really, I mean, the ultimate problem is that the tools at Uber it let me do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, right, yeah, and you know, that's kind of the you know, if you're at a company that you know, takes a, a kind of blameless postmortem process, they don't really ask, you know, who screwed up and, and, and why, like, why did, like, why did you screw up so badly? They say, you know, why do we have systems that allow this, this problem to happen? And how can we build our systems in a way such that it's not possible? And, and was that the culture at, at Uber? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Nice. Um, nice. I think, you know, there was even, I think my outage was 10 minutes. And, it was, I think, a little understandable. There was an, an outage a, a couple months after that where someone was trying to flip a flag the last night of the quarter because their teams were judged on quarterly OKRs <laughs> and ended up causing a... Oh my God, second order effects. Yeah, that's, ended up causing that's a 45-minute outage. And mm -hmm. um, the issue was, I believe, so at the time, Uber's um, like API service was written in Node and it was it was you use a callback style, and they just never invoked the callback for um, the request by accident. Oh, so it just it, it just um, hung, and yeah. Uber mm -hmm. Uber went down for forty five minutes on like a on a Friday night, which is you know, <laughs> one of the highest tra traffic um, uh, oh days god. of the week. Oh yeah. my god, I laugh, but you know it's it's common. Yeah, don't don't try and rush something like at the end of the quarter yeah. or a week like that. Exactly. And, you know, that, that's something that, you know, I, I think a, a lot of this boils down to understanding the way that uh, the organization works, mm -hmm. where I think, you know, Wealthfront very much had this culture of uh, continuous deployment, where we should be able to deploy the app at any time. And I, I really bought into that idea. And I, and I still do to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. um, but you also understand if you're at a place like Uber, they have a code freeze, um, around Halloween, for instance, because that's one of the craziest nights of the year. And when you have a large organization, it is important to be able to, to, um, to deploy your app frequently, but also when something goes wrong, people need to be around, yeah. you know, people, uh, it's not just, uh, it's not about you. Obviously, you know, one person should take responsibility for their, their features and their products, but also when something goes wrong, 
it's uh, the, the job of a team to help kind of fix the issue. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, that's um, that's really good. That's a that's an awesome story. Okay, so so then moving on from Uber, what was it like going from Uber to to Google? Was the was the interview different? Um, what was it? Yeah, what was that transition like? Yeah, I think the interview was relatively similar. I think it, it was probably more difficult at Google. It was my, um, I think my second time doing an interview at Google. Um, and I think, you know, people who are listening to the podcast are probably aware of, I would say the, the positive thing about the Google, the interview process at Google is that it's very well known. You know, it's, it's a known quantity. Mm-hmm. And I had studied for a bit, um, but I also kind of took a, I had an attitude of, I, I didn't want to study for a month. It's definitely possible to study for a month, two months, three months mm-hmm. for the um, the Google interview, um, and so I think to a certain extent, you know, like I said, uh, kind of about luck. I, I I felt confident about maybe half the topics that you can uh, be asked about in you know these interviews, and I think I just got kind of lucky that a lot of my questions landed in kind of the topics that I felt more confident about. Nice. Um, yeah. So how was it? How was it different than than Uber? Yeah, I think well, for starters, Google was just a much more mature company, and and kind of is. I can't I can't really speak to um, the Uber of twenty twenty one. Sure. Um, but at least in I guess twenty seventeen, it was still it was it was still going through a lot of growing pains, as the prior story probably makes clear. Whereas at Google, you know, that I, wor- I worked in ads, which is um, a pretty good portion of the office that's in LA. And, you know, the ads business has been around at Google for, you know, 20 years-ish. Mm-hmm. And so, and it also, you know, ads makes 30, I don't, I don't know what, what the number is now. <laughs> pays, pays for, pays, pays for the, the, the cafeteria. Yeah, it, 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 it makes like $30 billion of revenue per quarter, right? And so yeah. the... And it's very profitable. At Uber, there was much more um, an attitude. It was things were still moving really quickly, uh, and it was much easier to break things. And also, it was just kind of less stable. They were less worried about you. They were more worried about are we going to go out of business. Um, mm-hmm. And at Google, they are um, at least in, in in ads, you know, there are lots of different types of uh, products at Google. And I think, I, you know, I can't really speak for the, for the non-ads products, but for ads, they're very focused on being very data-driven and um, making sure that nothing breaks um, for better or worse. Yeah. And so there's like a very regimented process of if you want to roll out, let's say I, I wanted to build it. Sorry, I'm just laughing. I'm just imagining if like all of Google ads went down for 10 minutes, oh, yeah. just like how expensive that would oh, be. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, so there, have, there have been some outages, <laughs> um, like the like numbers of the kind of cost of the outages at the scale that that uh, that Google ads operates at. You know, if you have a large outage, it can, it can be very large. Yeah, yeah, um, totally. And so, you know, at, at Google, let's say I wanted to make a feature. First, I write up a... Um, a design document, and I need to typically present this to some group of people, get feedback, and get buy-in that this is something I should build. And that and that was new to you. Um, I think there were document. I think there there was a process something like this at Uber, but uh, nowhere near as formal um, as at Google. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what did you what did you think about it at the time? Did you did you like it? Did you find it valuable? Oh yeah, I I, um, I totally loved it. I th- I thought it's 
it's something that uh, I think is, it really helped improve me as an engineer. And I think that, you know, there are so many kind of benefits to having this type of process, both in that you as the author of the document, it forces you to be really thoughtful and explicit about your change. Yeah, It forces you to talk to people, to make sure, you know, there were multiple times when I would be writing up some sort of proposal and I would talk to a senior person on a different team who maybe I didn't know so well and come away with some insight or some change as to um, how I should approach the problem that I was trying to solve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think being forced to do your homework, so to speak, is really valuable. Um, in, in my engineering orgs, I don't, I don't really do a, a formal design document approach, but any, any proposal or any like proposed new thing needs to come along with like at least two alternatives so that you're not just making a decision between doing the thing or not doing the thing. You're making a decision between not doing the thing and then, you know, three ways of doing the thing. And just forcing people to go through that exercise and and just not automatically reflexively just go with the first thing that comes into their mind, which is also, I think, a big part of what you're talking about, really forces better work. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that was one part of working at Google that um, I really, I really appreciated. And I also, you know, I really loved um, the ability to search through old documents mm -hmm. and, um, you know, trying to understand this code base that's been around for 20 years. Yeah. I spent a lot of my time reading through old design documents and looking at the comments and trying to understand, you know, how did we get to, to the place that we're at and why were certain choices made? That sounds incredibly valuable. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I think written communication in organizations that, that want to be around for a while, I think that written communication is really, really important because it can give that context um, to future engineers uh, that just wouldn't be wouldn't be available if everything was just, um, you know, phone or video calls that, that were ephemeral. So I'm not I'm not surprised that you found that incredibly valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, you know, so so after I've written this document and then I've, I've kind of written my code and I've gotten it submitted, now I need to run an experiment, you know. And um, I think this is a pretty standard part of still something I like where you run a 1% experiment and then a 5% experiment. I would say the one of the things I like less about working at Google and ads is that to ramp up from 1% to 5%, you needed to kind of justify the metrics impact of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, oftentimes it became, you know, depending on your product, it would be difficult to isolate the exact slice of traffic that you expect uh, to be impacted. And then also um, you there's oftentimes some noisiness in data that is really not impacted by your experiment, but you would kind of end up going through these iterations of getting approvals that just drew out the overall process. Yeah, it sounds like sounds almost like an academic approach that that can be really like slow and yep. yeah. require a lot of patience and a lot of extra back and forth, which may not be nearly as fun as the the doing. 
No, absolutely. And I think there is, there's definitely benefit in having a process like this. Um, and I, you know, have a lot of empathy for the managers and kind of higher ups at Google who are trying to balance these trade-offs between having people build new features and then also not breaking things. It's, it's a hard balance yeah. to strike. Um, right. That being said, at, you know, as an engineer, it can be frustrating when you're building a feature, you know beyond any doubt that you're not, you know, I'm, I'm working on this small product that does, you know, let's say $10 million in revenue a year, which for, the, for um, all of Google ads is very small. And yeah, I mean, it's so funny. It's like that's that's tiny for Google and bigger than a lot of independent companies with many software engineers. But yeah, right. totally. Yeah, so I'm 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 making a change in the small product, and I look at the metrics for all of Google Ads, and one metric is at the 95% uh, confidence interval uh, is down 0.02%, and I need to explain to an, a you know high level engineer on some team in Mountain View what my product is and why it's impossible for me to have changed this. Hmm. And then their response will often be, why don't you wait one more week for the data to stabilize? And it's just kind of those sorts yeah. of things that, you know, it's it's kind of a trade-off that comes of being at a large organization with that kind of product. Yeah. No, I mean not that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, just as the as the scale gets larger, your your changes just become you know, relatively smaller. I mean, right. it just makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, so I really like a lot of the 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 techniques and things that that you've seen at these companies and and have found valuable because, in my view, a lot of these have have takeaways that can be done kind of no matter uh, how many years you've you've been in software engineering. Right? There's nothing that that stops somebody right out of a boot camp to putting together something like a design document or uh, preventing, you know, their changes to go to like the entire app, or, you know, the entire user base all at all at once. So these, these seem like valuable, um, valuable ways to to rapidly become more senior or act more senior. Like I think they're really, really good things to keep in mind. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Sam, this has been awesome. Where can people find out more about you online? Yeah, I guess um, the best place is probably on um, the website of Trivi, which is uh, trivi.co. That's uh, T-R-I-V-V-Y.co. And yeah, that's that's probably the best place to um, find out more about what I'm working on now. Awesome. I will put that in the show notes. Thank you for joining me today. David, it's been a real pleasure. All right, folks, that's it for today. I'm David Gutman, and I hope you join me again next time for Junior to Senior. Remote work is here to stay. I can show you how to find and hire a full team of remote senior engineers for a quarter of what you'd pay at local rates. To learn more, check out superstruct.tech slash four phase. That's F-O-U-R dash P-H-A-S-E.